This is Space Time, Series 24, Episode 107, for broadcast on the 22nd of September 2021. Coming up on Space Time, the Perseverance rover collects a second sample of Martian history. Europe's ExoMars 2020 on track for launch exactly a year from now. And the Haypith-1 rocket in flames on its Whaler's Way launch pad. All that and more coming up on Space Time. Welcome to Space Time with Stuart Gary. NASA's Mars Perseverance rover has successfully collected its first pair of rock samples, and scientists say they're already gaining new insights into the Jezero Crater region of the Red Planet. After collecting its first sample on September the 6th, the six-wheel car-sized rover collected a second sample from the same rock two days later. Analysis of the rock samples, together with the rover's previous failed sampling attempt, will help scientists piece together the timeline for the area's past which we now know is marked by volcanic activity and periods of persistent water. Project lead scientist Ken Farley from NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena, California, says it looks like these first rocks are revealing a potentially habitable sustained environment in which water was present for a long time. The rock that's provided the mission's first core samples is basaltic in composition and may be the product of lava flows. Not surprising considering Jezero's an impact crater. The presence of crystalline minerals in the volcanic rocks is especially helpful for radiometric dating. And the volcanic origin of the rock could help scientists accurately date when it formed. In this way, every sample collected can serve as part of a larger chronological puzzle. Put them all together in the right order, and scientists have a timeline for the most important events in the crater's history. Some of these events obviously include when the crater was formed, the emergence and disappearance of Jezero's lake, and changes in the planet's climate in the ancient past. Importantly, scientists have also spotted salts within these rocks. Now, these salts may have formed when groundwater flowed through the area, altering the original minerals in the rock, or more likely when liquid water evaporated, leaving the salts behind. Now, it's also possible that the salt minerals in these first two rock cores may have also trapped tiny bubbles of actual ancient Martian water. If water is present, they could serve as microscopic time capsules, offering clues about the ancient climate and habitability of Mars. Importantly, salt minerals are also well known, here on Earth at least, for their ability to preserve signs of ancient life. So, fingers crossed. The Perseverance science team already knew a lake once filled the crater, but the length of time the lake was there has been uncertain. Scientists couldn't dismiss the possibility that Jezero's lake was simply a flash in the pan. Floodwaters could have rapidly filled the impact crater, then dried up just as quickly in the space of years. But the level of alteration scientists have seen in the rock that provided the core samples, as well as the rock the team targeted on their first sample acquisition attempt, all suggest that groundwater must have been present for a long time. This groundwater could be related to the lake that once filled Jezero, or it could have travelled there through rocks long after the lake dried up. Scientists still can't say whether any of the water that altered these rocks was present for tens of thousands or for millions of years, but they feel more certain now that it was there long enough to make the area welcoming to any microscopic life that might have existed there in the past. 
Of course, Perseverance is searching the crater floor for samples that can be brought back to Earth to answer profound questions about Martian history. The collected samples are being sealed in titanium tubes, which are then carried in a special storage cache inside Perseverance. Eventually, they'll be retrieved from the red planet's surface by a future joint NASA-ESA mission, probably in the early 2030s. Perseverance's next likely sample site is some 200 metres away, in an area known as South Ceta, a series of ridges covered by sand dunes, boulders and rock shards, looking a lot like a stack of broken dishes. While the rover's recent drill sample represents what's likely to be one of the youngest rock layers found in Jezero Crater, South Ceta is likely to be much older, and will provide the science team with a better timeline to understand events that shape the crater floor, including its lake. However, nothing's going to be happening for a while now. You see, at the start of October, all Mars missions will be standing down from commanding their spacecraft for several weeks. That's because the red planet is now entering Mars' solar conjunction. That's when Mars's orbit takes it to the opposite side of the Sun from where the Earth is, and consequently out of communications reach. Perseverance isn't likely to drill the South Ceta region until sometime after this period. The rover is characterising the red planet's geology and past climate, paving the way for eventual human exploration during the 2030s. It landed in Jezero Crater in mid-February in an ancient dried-out river delta, where sediment from further upstream would have washed down and settled. An ideal place to search for signs of past microbial life. This is Space Time. Still to come. Europe's ExoMars 2020 on track for launch in a year from now. And SpaceX undertakes its 16th launch this year, while China launches its 33rd rocket of the year. All that and more still to come on Space Time. Well, it was slated to fly in 2020, but ongoing technical delays and the COVID-19 coronavirus pandemic have all combined to force the ExoMars 2020 mission to miss its original launch window. But mission managers with the European Space Agency and the Russian Federal Space Agency at Roscosmos are now saying all is back on track for a launch sometime between August and October next year. That's when Mars will be in its closest orbital position to the Earth. Now, all the flight hardware needed for the launch of the ExoMars mission has been integrated into the spacecraft. The primary goal of this mission is to determine once and for all whether or not there's ever been any life on Mars, and to better understand the history of water on the Red Planet. The ExoMars rover, named Rosalind Franklin, includes a drill to investigate beneath the Red Planet's surface. It contains a miniature life search laboratory. That's been stored for the past few years in an ultra-clean zone, just to make sure it's not contaminated by any Earth microbes. The European carrier module has now met all its test milestones, the Russian Kazachuk landing platform has been equipped with its 13 science instruments, and the Rosalind Franklin rover's nine instruments have all passed their final thermal and vacuum tests. The new schedule foresees a launch window sometime between August and October 2022. Celestial mechanics define that only relatively short launch windows every two years exist in which Mars can be reached relatively quickly from the Earth. ExoMars will be the first mission to the Red Planet to search for signs of life at depths of up to two metres below the surface, a place where biological signatures of life may be uniquely well preserved. 
Of course, as well as next year's mission, the ExoMars project also includes the Mars Trace Gas Orbiter, which was launched back in 2016. It's currently orbiting the Red Planet and is delivering important scientific results obtained by its own Russian and European science instruments. It's also used to relay data from NASA's Mars Curiosity rover and the InSight lander. InSight will also relay data from the ExoMars 2020, now I guess ExoMars 2022 mission, once it arrives at the Red Planet. This report from ESA TV. The ExoMars missions began in 2016 with the successful launch and deployment of the Trace Gas Orbiter. This first uh, ExoMars spacecraft is now uh, nicely orbiting around Mars. It's fulfilling uh, very well its scientific mission and it has proven as well its capability to relay data uh, from uh, Mars assets uh, to the Earth and we use for that the American rovers. This proven capability will be needed to communicate with Europe's first Mars rover, Rosalind Franklin. A landing site in an area called Oxia Planum has been recommended for this joint ESA and Russian mission, which has four elements. We have a carrier module to push the spacecraft to Mars. Uh, we have a descent module uh, to bring the landing assets, uh, the rover for the European and the landing platform for the uh, Russian partner down to Mars. And we have uh, the rover, which is the main interest of the Europeans into the mission. This rover carries nine payload instruments uh, that will fulfill basically the main mission to discover uh, traces of life on the planet. The rover, which was built at Airbus UK, is now undergoing final tests in Toulouse, France. The European carrier module and the Russian landing platform were delivered earlier this year and, together with the descent module, are undergoing final environmental tests in Cannes, France. But there are challenges ahead for the descent module. In 2016, the ExoMars Entry, Descent and Lander Demonstrator module crashed. This was due to a problem with the onboard computer ending the descent sequence prematurely. But in recent high-altitude drop tests for the ExoMars 2020 lander, the main parachutes suffered damage before fully inflating. This will require further crucial tests. This go-no-go situation means it's a challenging time ahead for the mission a race against the clock. All the Russian and European teams are now focused at uh, completing the verification program of the spacecraft and the next launch opportunity will only reappear on August 2022. So you can imagine that we are all very mobilized to resolve the last risk which we are facing. The parachute is one. The completion of the system test program is another one uh, in order to get ready to catch this opportunity. As well as the science landing platform, the Russians are providing ExoMars's ride to Mars on a proton rocket. And in that report from ESA TV, we heard from the European Space Agency's ExoMars team leader, Francis Spoto. This is Space Time. Still to come, the Hapeth-1 rocket in flames on its well-as-way launch pad. And SpaceX undertakes its 16th launch this year, while China launches its 33rd rocket of the year. All that and more still to come on Space Time. Taiwanese company TaiSpace's attempt to launch its new Hapeth-1 rocket has ended in flames, with the rocket catching a light on its launch pad. The fire was apparently sparked by an internal fault in the rocket during ignition. Southern Launch says no one was injured in the blaze, which was contained to the launch pad itself. 
Witnesses reported seeing flames and black smoke rising from the launch facility, followed by an explosion and then white smoke and steam. Southern Launch's attempt to conduct the test flight of the 10.2-metre two-stage rocket over the past week have been plagued with problems. The first launch attempt was scrubbed because of high-altitude winds. A second launch attempt days later was aborted seconds before liftoff when one of the rocket's launch sequence systems failed to come online, forcing launch control to place the rocket into safe mode. The flight from the New Whalers Way orbital launch complex was to be the first of three test flights this year for the facility on the South Australian Air Peninsula, just south of Port Lincoln. The mission would have monitored the effect of the launch on the local environment and tested Thai Space's styrene butadiene and nitrous oxide hybrid propulsion system. The Hapeth, or Flying Squirrel rocket, uses four hybrid engines on its first stage and a single hybrid motor for the upper stage. Southern Launch completed its first rocket launch in September last year from its Kunaba test range on the South Australian west coast near Sejuna, launching a Netherlands DART rocket on a scientific suborbital flight. This is space time. Still to come, SpaceX successfully launches another 51 Starlink broadband internet satellites and China successfully launches a new direct broadcast telecommunications satellite for the 2022 Winter Olympics. All that and more still to come on Space Time. SpaceX has successfully launched another 51 Starlink broadband internet satellites aboard one of its Falcon 9 rockets. The flight from Space Launch Complex 4E at the Vandenberg Space Force Base in California was the 32nd Starlink flight, but only the second from the West Coast rocket range. The mission was also the 10th launch for the same first-stage booster, which then successfully landed aboard the drone ship Of Course I Still Love You, which was pre-positioned downrange in the North Pacific Ocean. T-minus 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 0, liftoff. Falcon 9, as it successfully lifts off from pad 4E at Vandenberg Space Force Base, carrying our stack of 51 Starlink satellites to orbit. Now, moments ago, we throttled the engines down in preparation for Max-Q, or maximum aerodynamic pressure on the engines, and that is coming up in just about 10 seconds here. Max Q. We did just pass through Max Q, and in a minute we will have three events happening in back-to-back in rapid succession, and that's main engine cutoff, or MECO, stage separation, and second engine startup one. Now, first main engine cutoff, or MECO, this is where all nine M1D engines will shut off to slow the vehicle down in preparation for stage separation, where the engine chill started. Where the first and second stage uh, will separate with the first stage making its way back down to Earth for landing and the second stage continuing on its journey to the third event, or second engine startup one. And this is where the MVAC engine lights up and propels the second stage along with the Starlink satellites to orbit. Miko. The light from that first stage engine cut off. MVAC ignition confirmed. 
The main engine cut off, successful stage separation, and the second stage engine has started up. That Bearing is separation confirmed. The Merlin vacuum engine and fairing separation. The two fairing halves separating from the Starlink satellites. Today's flight marks the 24th time SpaceX has reflown the Falcon fairing halves since November of 2019. And again, this was our second flight for one of the fairing halves and a third for the other half. We'll be attempting to recover the halves again today using our recovery vessel NRC Quest, which previously supported Dragon recovery missions. Stage one will be executing two burns in order to make its way back down to Earth. The first is the entry burn, where three of the M1D engines will reignite, and this helps to slow the stage down as it re-enters the upper part of the Earth's atmosphere. The second burn is the landing burn, and this is a single-engine burn that brings the vehicle speed down rapidly in order to land on the drone ship. Both vehicles are following nominal trajectories. Both Stage 1 and Stage 2 are on nominal trajectories right now, with Stage 1 is cruising back to our drone ship. Of course, I still love you. Reusability is critical to what we do at SpaceX. It allows us to refly the most expensive parts of the rocket, which in turn drives down the cost of space access. Now the Stage 1 entry burn should be coming up here in a little under a minute and this will be a 20-second burn of that first stage. Some of you may know that Falcon 9 is named after the Millennium Falcon from Star Wars, and the number 9 indicates the number of Merlin 1D engines on the first stage. The Merlins on the first stage are optimized for sea level, and these achieve 190,000 pounds of thrust during ascent and descent, and the MVAC engine our Merlin vacuum engine is optimized for 220,500 pounds of thrust in vacuum. Stage one entry burn startup. This is a 20 second burn of three of the Merlin 1D engines of the first stage. Stage one entry burn shutdown. We did Both have. vehicles continue to follow nominal trajectories. We did stage have. One, is saved. We did have a successful stage one entry burn, but there is a lot of soot on that first stage of the booster. And that is because the rocket-grade kerosene, or RP-1, that is used as a fuel in Falcon 9 is carbon-based. And when it burns, it generates that Stage soot. Transonic. And then as the booster approaches its landing site during descent, it does this long re-entry burn that slows it down uh, prior to re-entering the atmosphere. And when it re-enters uh, with its engines first, the booster actually flies through its own plume, which deposits the Terminal soot guidance. on the rocket. Stage one landing burn should be starting here very Stage shortly. One Stage two FTS is safe. Stage one landing confirmed. Stage one, having landed on our drone ship for the 10th time, this marks our 90th overall successful recovery of a Falcon 9 first stage and the 124th successful launch of a Falcon 9. We just missed it, but we did have a successful second engine cutoff one and a confirmation of a good orbit. Up next, we will have a coast phase followed by the second burn of our second stage engine. These additional burns allows us to modify the orbits of our payloads more efficiently than launching directly into the final orbit. So today, our second stage will coast for about 35 minutes until we reach apogee, or the highest point of the orbit, where we will conduct that second stage burn. The satellites were all successfully placed into a 570-kilometer high orbit 30 minutes after launch. This mission brings to 1,740 the total number of Starlink satellites launched by SpaceX so far. The 260-kilogram spacecraft are each equipped with KU, KA and E-band phased array antennas.
SpaceX plans to eventually launch some 30,000 of these satellites. That's raised serious concerns among astronomers who say the starlight constellations are already affecting vital scientific research. This is Space Time. Still to come, China successfully launches a new direct broadcast telecommunications satellite. And later in the science report, a new study confirms that the sun's 11-year solar cycle cannot explain global warming. All that and more still to come on Space Time. China has successfully launched a new direct broadcast telecommunications satellite. The China Shadow Zhongzhi-9B was launched aboard a Long March 3B rocket from the Zhaichang Satellite Launch Center in southwestern China's Sichuan province. The 5,100-kg satellite has been placed into a geostationary transfer orbit. The Zhaojing-9B is equipped with specially designed transponders to support high-definition 4 and 8K transmissions. It'll be used for major events, such as next year's Beijing Winter Olympics. The spacecraft's carrying enough fuel to run for 15 years. The launch marked the 388th flight of a Long March series rocket and Beijing's 33rd launch this year. This is Space Time. And time now to take another brief look at some of the other stories making news in science this week with the Science Report. A new study has confirmed that the Sun's 11-year solar cycle cannot explain global warming. The new analysis, reported in the journal Climate Dynamics, shows that Earth's global climate system fluctuates in 11 and 3 and a half year cycles. Now, the 11-year cycle periodically matches the Sun's 11-year solar cycle. And climate change deniers repeatedly use this coincidence to argue that this, rather than the use of fossil fuels, plays a major role in global warming. But the new analysis, which was coordinated with the University of Copenhagen, supports a large body of earlier research showing that fluctuations between Earth's climate system and the Sun's solar cycle are out of sync. They simply don't line up over the long term. The authors say this new study confirms that the Sun's fluctuations play little if any role in current global warming and thus refutes the climate change deniers' campaign of major solar effects on recent climate evolution. It's been revealed that 26 out of the 27 scientists wrote an open letter in the Lancet Medical Journal rejecting the claim that the COVID-19 coronavirus had leaked out of the Wuhan Institute of Virology lab were actually linked to that laboratory. The letter strongly condemned conspiracy theories suggesting that COVID-19 does not have a natural origin. It went on to claim that scientists had concluded that the coronavirus originated in the wild. The letter, which we reported at the time, shut down much of the scientific debate about the origins of the virus. But it was later discovered that this letter was orchestrated by British zoologist Peter Daszak, who's president of the American-based EcoHealth Alliance, which has been funding research at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Now, an investigative report by a journalist at the Daily Telegraph using freedom of information details has uncovered that 26 of those 27 signatories to the letter also had connections to the Wuhan Institute of Virology. 
The World Health Organization says more than 8 million people have been killed by the COVID-19 coronavirus, with almost 4.7 million confirmed fatalities and some 230 million people infected. Paleontologists have discovered the fossils of a new species of meat-eating theropod dinosaur in southeastern Brazil. Named Karupi Itata, the bipedal predator roamed the Earth some 70 million years ago during the late Cretaceous. A report in the Journal of South American Earth Sciences says the new discovery is based on three vertebrae and a partial pelvic girdle. The authors say muscle attachment scars on the bones suggest the five-metre-long predator would have been well adapted for running and chasing down its prey. A new study has identified seven key personality traits of cats. Scientists at the University of Helsinki studied some 4,316 cats from 56 different breeds ranging from purebreds to regular everyday house cats. And just like humans and other higher intelligence animals, it seems cats have distinct personalities, each with their own stable behavioural differences. Understanding a cat's individual personality is important for providing Kitty with the right environmental needs for a good quality of life. For example, active cats may need more enrichment, such as lots of playthings compared to less active individuals, who just need a good place to sit back and watch the world run by. And fearful cats may need extra hiding places and owners who have a more peaceful lifestyle. The study reported in the journal Animals focused on five specific personality and two problematic behavioural-related factors. These were activity and playfulness, fearfulness, aggression towards humans, sociability towards humans, sociability towards other cats, litterbox issues, and excessive grooming, the last two being linked to sensitivity to stress. In addition to individual personality traits, there are also clear personality differences between the different breeds. For example, Russian blues tended to be the most fearful, while Abyssinians tended to be the least. The Bengal turns out to be the most active breed, while the Persian and exotic are the most passive. The Siamese and Balinese exhibited the most excessive grooming, while Turkish vans scored considerably higher in aggression towards humans and lower in sociability towards other cats. Well, in case you missed it, the eyes of the tech world this week have been on Apple and the launch of their new iPhone 13, which comes with longer battery life, better cameras and the option of even more memory. With the details, we're joined by technology editor Alex Harav-Royt from ITY.com. Okay, so Apple has launched four new iPhone 13 models, two new iPads, a new Apple Watch Series 7, and new Apple Fitness workout routines. So with the new iPhone 13 models, there's the 13 mini and the 13. There's also the 13 Pro and the Pro Max. Now, the 13 Mini and the 13 Pro have one and a half hours of extra battery life compared to the 12 Mini and the 12 Pro. And the 13 and the 13 Pro Max have two and a half hours of battery life more than their 12 equivalents. Uh, So there's a bigger battery inside. There's better cameras inside. They've got, uh, for example, this new cinematic mode, which is quite impressive because it delivers the technique that filmmakers called rack focus, which is shifting focus from one subject to another which guides the audience's attention in their movies. There's also a new macro mode on the iPhone 13 and 13 Pro, which allows you to look close up at you know bees and flowers and things. But you also have the faster A15 Bionic processor, which is faster than last year's model and faster than just about every other Android processor out there. A lot of the Android guys are still trying to catch up to Apple's processor from last year. And on the Pro models, of which there is now a one terabyte capacity model, they can record in 4K ProRes video format at 30 frames per second. This is the video format that is used 
by the film industry. You know, you've got other things like more 5G bands. Aluminium cases are completely made from 100% recycled aluminium or aluminum, as the Americans would say. The little bands that are on the sides of the phone, the little antenna bands, are made from uh, recycled plastic from bottles. But, you know, if you have an iPhone 10, 10s, 11, or 12, and you're happy with it, iOS 15 is coming out on the 21st of September, and as well as iPadOS 15, and WatchOS 8, and TVOS 15. And there are heaps of great features in those operating systems that will make your existing phone feel like a brand new phone. So a lot of people are not upgrading year by year. They're upgrading every three or four or five years. Or jump. six and, years for me. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, you know, the iPhone 12, the, the 12 Pro, is gone. It's now replaced by the 13 Pro. But the iPhone 12 and the iPhone 11 are still on sale and they're cheaper. So Apple has a range of different price points available. Now, they also launched the iPad 9th generation, 10.2-inch screen, A13 Bionic processor, True Tone display, and it's got the center stage camera on the front, That you know, when you're using the FaceTime camera. So with FaceTime or with Zoom or WebEx or, or similar applications, it's like having a camera person in the iPad who's following you around, a bit like a gimbal without the gimbal. So if you're in front of a bench and you're cooking some stuff or you're working on something and you move to one side, the the camera pans towards with you. It's really quite spectacular. And so that is still in Australia, $499 in the US, $329. And they've upgraded the capacity from this entry-level model from 32 to 64 gig. You can pay more for the cellular version. But that's a whole lot of power. That's compatible with the pencil if you get a pencil and keyboards and mice. It's, a, it's an incredibly powerful iPad, but they've also got the new iPad Mini, 8.3 inches. It looks like a shrunken version of the iPad Air with the Touch ID on the button and the A15 processor, the center stage. It's so small and cute and powerful. So it's um, really a, an excellent update. And for those who are listening, if you don't yet want to upgrade to iOS 15 or iPad OS 15, there is an extremely important iOS update to 14.8 and iPad OS update to 14.8 watchOS to 7.6.2, and macOS Big Sur to 11.6. There's yet another actively exploited vulnerability that can allow hackers to load software onto your devices and take over your computers. Unlike Samsung, still no foldy-foldy. Well, look, there's no folding phone. There was talk that there would be a satellite capability inside for emergency calls, not for making calls, but emergency text. That apparently was going to come be switched on next year, so that might still be there. There was no stylus. I thought there might be a stylus, but... The, uh, all the iPads have styluses. There's no millimeter wave bands for 5G outside of the US. We, a lot, everyone thought yeah, that, that would come to Australia and I Japan. That would happen, yeah. yeah. Well, the thing is that uh, fi- although Australia now has 5G millimeter wave available in Australia, it's still a fly spec of coverage in comparison to the rest of 5G and 4G. And this time next year, there'll be much more millimeter wave 5G, and there'll be other devices from Samsung and others that will be using it. That's Alex Saharov Royd from ity.com. And that's the show for now. Spacetime is available every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday through Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Spotify, Acast, Amazon Music, Bytes.com, SoundCloud, YouTube, your favorite podcast download provider, and from Spacetime with StuartGary.com. Spacetime's also broadcast through the National Science Foundation on Science Zone Radio and on both iHeartRadio and TuneIn Radio. 
and you can help to support our show by visiting the Spacetime store for a range of promotional merchandising goodies. Or by becoming a Spacetime patron, which gives you access to triple episode commercial-free versions of the show, as well as lots of bonus audio content which doesn't go to air, access to our exclusive Facebook group and other rewards. Just go to spacetimewithstuartgary.com for full details. And if you want more space time, please check out our blog where you'll find all the stuff we couldn't fit in the show, as well as heaps of images, news stories, loads of videos, and things on the web I find interesting or amusing. Just go to spacetimewithstuartgary.tumblr.com. That's all one word, and that's Tumblr without the E. You can also follow us through at StuartGary on Twitter, at SpacetimewithStuartGary on Instagram, through our Spacetime YouTube channel. And on Facebook, just go to facebook.com forward slash Spacetime with Stuart Gary. And Spacetime is brought to you in collaboration with Australian Sky and Telescope magazine, your window on the universe. You've been listening to Spacetime with Stuart Gary. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com. 